This week on Our Thing. People tried to warn me not to go there. And some of the stories that I was told, they were so outrageous that I said, that can't be true. Whistleblower Danielle Spencer exposes the retaliation efforts of a major federal agency. My mantra has been for the past several years to finish my life well for God. And tenured author Kathleen Barrett discusses an inspirational body of work that will make your day. Stay tuned for the most entertaining hour in radio. This is Our Thing with everyone's favorite ex-gangster, Gunner, 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 Gunner. What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. I am joined by my co-host, Bill Crooks from Partners in Crime Podcast. Make sure to check it out wherever podcasts are consumed. You got a bit of a cold, so if I sound a little nasally, I apologize. But I hope everybody had a great week. I think most people think Fridays are better than the rest of the days of the week because it's the last work day. Anyways, we have a couple great guests coming on this week. You know, the central theme of these guests is kind of ethics, morals, and values. I don't want to give away their stories. I just you know, wait for them to come on and, and share them with you. But me and Bill were talking in the green room, and I was kind of talking about morals and ethics and, you know, my own, right? So in my previous life, I was a criminal, right? Some people would call it a gangster. Eventually, I got busted and arrested for 17 capital crimes. And the day that I got busted, the FBI came into this like holding cell. I'd just been arrested. I, the cops beat me up really bad when they arrested me. So I'm bloody and just a mess. And they ripped my shirt off. I'm all busted up. And an FBI team came in there and a guy says, Outside of this door is the ATF, three different counties, the state police, blah, 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 blah. He says, they all want jurisdiction. I just flashed on Blues Brothers. When the, yeah, they yeah. turned in that money to the orphanage and like a thousand cops come rushing in and they're all pointing right. guns at him and stuff. Yeah, these cops, they, they really weren't playing good cop, bad cop, but they're just playing good cop, really. And he says, I'm your last hope. If you work with me, I can make this go away. You got that cute little girlfriend. What's her name? Ramona. He's like, you can go home to her tonight. If you don't cooperate with me, then there's nothing I can do for you. I think he said you're going to go away for 30 years or whatever. And I'm, if I'm being honest, I puked at that moment. I leaned over and puked. I was beat the F up, dripping blood. I needed to get stitches. They had to take me to the emergency room. The nurse came in and said, dude, I don't even know where to begin with you. Like, you're so messed up. We got to put you in a full body cat skin just to see what's broken and what's, what's Right, whatever. but you weren't like Rodney I, King. I mean, they beat you for a reason. No, they, they were out of control with it. You know what I'm saying? I surrendered. You know, I threw my gun and surrendered. After a long high-speed chase. Yes, after a long high-speed chase. Yes, yeah. But I, at one point, I, I ran out of breath, put my hands up, threw my gun down and surrendered. And one of them comes charging in like he's Ray Lewis and tries to tackle me. And I kind of duck him and he goes flying by and dies in the snow. He gets up, tries to tackle me again so i just kind of body slam him just kind of fling him over like grab him fling him over i said i, I surrender bro i surrender and and all of a sudden like five more come rushing up and you know cuff me and then started beating my ass they're just stomping me out kicking me hit me with flashlights or mag lights or what a sticks whatever it was by the way partners in crime gunner limb episodes i think it's episode four we really break that whole thing down really well if you haven't heard it check it out it's really action-packed yeah make sure to check it out bill does a great job but anyway Anyways, he, they asked me about a murder. My cousin Johnny committed a double murder, and they wanted to know about that. They did ask me about Jack Toko, who was the boss of the mafia. There were pictures of me going in and out of the track, which was owned by the boss. My own moral compass, which sounds crazy coming from someone who was a criminal, said there's no way I'm going to cooperate and tarnish the legacy of my family. That's what was going through my mind as I'm sitting there 
bleeding and just, I know I'm going to prison for a long time, long time. I'm thinking maybe forever. I, I just kept picturing my grandparents, my grandma and grandpa Toko. You know, my grandfather wasn't a gangster or nothing like that, but it was still his family was all gangsters and all his friends and relatives and everybody. He would have his head hung low if you had ratted right, on Right, exactly. He, he, how yeah. could he ever face his family knowing that it was his grandson was the one that ratted and cooperated and put people in prison? Who lived under his roof. Yeah, and lived under his roof, was raised by him. I was raised by him. I couldn't fathom the idea of that. So I told these cops, no, nah, you got the wrong guy. And they said, well, I got the right guy. He showed me some pictures, surveillance pictures. Like, that's the, you're that guy in the picture, isn't it? I said, it's me, but I, I don't know, I'm not talking. I just need a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And I just wouldn't do it. I refused to do it. So it's just a strange, I guess, oxymoron to think that a criminal who robbed people, I just robbed a bank at the time, who was a gangster, committed... A lot of bad stuff, violent crimes, on and on and on over like a 15 year period would sit there and say, hey, my moral compass dictates that I won't tell on anybody, which is kind of ironic when you think of it. But um, one of our authors today has a Christian children's book. It has a, like a moral theme to it. That's what we need more of in this world. It just made me think of that, you know, my own moral compass. Bill, do you think I was in the right for doing that? Yeah, absolutely. There's such a thing as honor among thieves. You don't see it much anymore, no. but I totally get it. Speaking of ethics, you know who doesn't have any? Certain members of Andrew and Geta. Oh, wise guy, eh? And this is Street Beats. It's being touted as Italy's biggest mafia trial in 30 years. It boasted 337 defendants, of whom 207 were found guilty. And so many crimes, it took three judges and almost two hours to read the verdicts. The accumulated sentences reportedly added up to 2,200 years. The trial took place in a converted call center because no courtroom was able to accommodate the 600 lawyers, 900 witnesses, and various prison cells for all the accused. The trial involved the Indrangheta, now among the most powerful mobs in the world. And while I'm ever skeptical that the vacuums will just be filled, there were some interesting accounts revealed during the procession. At the center of the case were five murders. The torture and revenge killing of two mobsters in the summer of 96, the murder of a gay gangster in 2002, and another double killing in that same year. Three of those five bodies have never been found. A woman who refused to sell her land was killed, and her body was fed to pigs hungry pigs that had been starved to prepare them for the feast. Oh Her leftover bones were then crushed under a bulldozer. A similar victim met with a car bomb. The explosion broke both his legs, rendering him unable to get out of the burning car. He burned alive. The trial also revealed in detail the extent to which the Indrangheta has infiltrated every aspect of Italian society. If you want to work in a factory, you okay it with the mob. Deliveries to your business? Better figure out which gangster to buy from. Ambulances? Well, they're used to smuggle contraband as well as fugitives. The water from public fountains gets diverted to illegal cannabis farms. They even divvy up the dearly deceased. Funeral services are divided amongst the various mob-run funeral parlors equally. The cemeteries? Well, they make a convenient place to store weapons. So, who's going to take over all these lucrative rackets? Well, for starters... I suspect 130 defendants who were acquitted, all of them eager to get back to work, I'm sure. And speaking of that gay gangster that was killed, this just in. It was recently reported that the South Italian mafia has dropped its ban on homosexuals after learning that a mob boss's son was living as a fabulous drag queen named Lady Godiva. 
Although homosexuality is still taboo among the older bosses, the mafia has relaxed its rules to permit gay men in its lower ranks. As long as they're subtle about it. Sounds like they still need to hammer out those details. Maybe the drag queens have to wear earth tones and low-cut plaid skirts. Nothing weird. That is your street beat. <laughs> wow. There's so much there to unravel, but I will say this. The, the mafia in Italy, is it's always going to be there. We talk about the funeral thing. It's the same thing in Detroit. All the mob families and Italian families basically had to get their funerals at Bignasco. And this goes back to like the... 40s, you know, my mother was laid out there. Everybody, everyone in my family. Anyways, it's, this goes to show you these people have their hands in everything, but I'm still baffled about the gay thing. They're going woke. I guess, you know, the mob is, the, they don't want to get canceled. Well, it's funny because they're like, well, as long as they're subtle about it. I'm like, he's in drag and he calls himself Lady Godiva. <laughs> <laughs> How subtle can you be? Right. And that's what happened to the other one. He was a hitman and his cousin had to kill him because they figured out he was gay or he was being open about his relationship. And so they said that he scandalized the family or whatever. So they made his cousin, who's also a hitman, you know, they made the oh. hitman kill his own cousin. Because wow. he's like, that'll, that'll erase the stain from the family of paid killers. I feel no honor in having known people like that. And uh, I see nothing good coming out of those people unless they're going to jail. Say 200 people were convicted. It was a little more than that. So you got roughly 2,200 years sentenced. You got 200 guys. They're only doing yeah. 11 years apiece. Not to mention the 130 they let go. So if I got to say, Italy looks like on face value, they're giving it hell. And the thing that's funny about Italy, and we talked about it, they'll try you in abstention. You don't yeah. have to be there to be found guilty. They're like, you're entitled to a fair trial, but hey, you should have been there. It didn't go well for you. Yeah. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have our first guest. So stay tuned to our thing on 1010 The King. We'll be right back. Hey, have you checked out Our Thing Apparel? It's the original gangster clothing brand that lets you represent where you live, featuring t-shirts, hoodies, vintage tracksuits, and more. Our Thing Apparel allows you to customize your clothing for your city or state. And now we're proud to launch our Atlanta line of urban casual wear. Check out OurThingApparel.com and use the promo code 1010 when checking out to get 10% off your total order. Make our thing your thing. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you're ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-852-1736. 800-852-1736. That's 800-852-1736. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50 pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. That's 800-870-3609. 
Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. And tonight, I'd like to introduce my first guest, Danielle Spencer. This is a very interesting guest. I guess I could come right out and say she's a whistleblower, right? But let me just go ahead and give a quick bio about her. She's got like a bunch of degrees, master's degrees, like, like one of those super smart human beings. I root for people like this. I look at people like this and go, well done, man, because you did what I could never do. And I congratulate you for that. Danielle, welcome to the show, by the way. Uh, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So we're going to get into your story and then, of course, your book and what it was about. The irony is maybe an hour ago, I was sitting there uh, listening to a podcast with Alex Jones. Okay. So he's kind of a, people think he's crazy, he's conspiracy theorist or whatever. And he might be to some degree, I don't know. But there's a lot of stuff that he has exposed that actually was true, like deep state and and a lot of corruption in the government and things like that, that he was able to expose through his research. Vedic Ravaswamy was interviewing him and he was kind of getting to the history of his life. And I was really impressed. I was like, wow, this guy don't play around. He's a serious dude. Now, and you, where, where did you grow up, by the way? In the Washington, D.C. area. Born and raised here. <laughs> so you you were in the epicenter. You were in the heart of yes. of political, yes. I want to say political chaos, but really it kind of. Yeah, some might say deep in the swamp. Right, yeah, you, you were swimming in a swamp, knee deep. But where did you go to school again? You didn't go to Georgetown. No, University of Maryland. I went to the University of Maryland both for undergrad and graduate. If you don't mind, I don't want to pry, but I kind of like to paint the picture of who you were before you actually went to school. Did you grow up in a pretty good environment? I didn't. I was a terrible kid. But did you have like good parents and did they push you in school and stuff like that? Yes. And I didn't know anything different. We were raised that we were going to go to college, even though I will say I was the first generation to go to college, but I didn't know any different. Two parent household, middle class. They were blue collar workers. And they just raised me and my siblings that you were going to go to college. So I didn't know anything different. I hate to say it, but pretty boring growing up. Nothing exciting. No, no, no. That's not boring. Your parents, in my opinion, are superheroes. Your parents did the right thing and God bless them. They're saints. What kind of kid were you, though? Like, when did you play sports? You were kind of a troublemaker. You No, very studious, very quiet. I was not the life of the party. Nothing like that. Did you like to read? Yes, I did like to read. Yeah, I figured. So you were just a regular good kid. What were your aspirations in high school? I actually thought to be a doctor. I wanted to be a pathologist. I wanted to study infectious diseases. So when I started off, now they call it STEM kid. I was basically a STEM kid. And I started college thinking I was going to be a doctor. And then right before it was time for me to graduate, I went in for my first autopsy. And... <laughs> I had that type of reaction where I know I blacked out. I don't know what happened, but whatever happened during the time that I blacked out, it scared the staff where they were standing over top of me like, are you okay? Are you okay? And that's when I said, okay, well, I got to find something different to do because. (laughs) Yeah, the same for me. I just, the thought of like cutting into human beings while they're still alive just freaks me out. So I understand, believe me. You don't want to pass out in the autopsy room, man. They'll throw you on the table. (laughs) It's the worst place you can pass out. Right? Oh, got another cadaver over here. Get that one off the floor. (laughs) So you decided to go into what? After graduation, I spoke to a couple of people and they said I was counseled to try technology. And that's what I did. So I went into the computer field 
I didn't get another bachelor's degree. I was advised to get a master's. So that's what I did. I got the first master's in information systems. I got a second master's in business administration so that I could do IT, but not the technical side, more of the policy side or the operation side and understand from a business perspective. And after that, it's been my career. So you started this career working for the government. We can't really get into what government entity it is. We prefer to leave that out. We can say the one that collects taxes. So the people, <laughs> yes. The worst Freaking one of all the monsters. I hate them. So did you make the leap straight from college into this government position or did you have a progression of a career? How did you end up there? It was more I started off as a contractor and I started off doing coding or applications development. So it was a progression. Mm -hmm. And by the time I went to that government agency, I already had maybe about 10 or 15 years experience. So I went in not as a new person, but with someone who had been in a field and had some years experience. I will say that people tried to warn me not to go there. And some of the stories that I was told, they were so outrageous that I said, that, that can't yeah. be true. <laughs> you know? Like, what were the stories, if you don't mind me asking, that do you remember? I, beyond, I can't remember yeah. now because I completely dismissed them that they are just too crazy. Yeah, no. That is so crazy. That really wouldn't happen. Sure. So it went in one ear and out the other. So you probably took the job with the idea in mind that this is a good long-term stable position, good benefits, got a good retirement. It's a government entity. You know, it should be a good place to work, a good work environment. And then you get in there and start working in there. And like, what is the first kind of things that you start to see that I are on the side of, wait a minute, this is not normal? or legal? I would say the first few years, it was not where I would say things were illegal. It was just a lot of unethical things. Well, I should say what I would classify as being unethical. Oh. Certain individuals being promoted to positions over others for personal reasons. Sure. There were quite a few people who, they're not political appointees, but they had political ties in either party. So it, it wasn't a partisan thing. Yeah. And they would decide to bring these people in and it was under a special pay scale. So it was seeing things like that. And I would see them, but it really didn't impact me. Right. So it's, as long as you don't ask me to do anything that I'm not supposed to do, right. you can do whatever you want yeah. as long as you don't involve me. Right. But to be clear, you're talking about careers or basically money and perks given as favors. Position. Yeah. Power. That's what it seemed like to me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have to couch that. It, there were things that I just, you know, when you grow up like I did. And so you think people apply for a job. Everyone who applies for it gets an equal opportunity to get the position. Yeah, the best person who fits the position, that's what they get. So I had a very almost rose colored glass view of the world. And so when I started working, the scales started to fall off, period, you know, when you deal with people. But it was going to this one agency where, to me, things seemed a little bit more rampant in that agency. And as I've been going through, like I call the whistleblower experience, they're protected. And I will say that, in my opinion, 95, 97% of the people are honest, hardworking people. However, you have a group of people in positions of authority who aren't. And my personal opinion is it's set up like that on purpose so that you don't have honest people in high ranking positions because then they'll treat people fairly 
or they'll implement the tax code fairly, where you're not just bothering middle class people, but you're getting taxes from everyone. So going through this, to me, it's done purposely to make sure things are not done equitably. I don't see it changing. I don't care what administration you put in there. In my opinion, if you want change, you don't just change the commissioner. Uh They're going to have to go down uh, quite a few levels. And it's going to take years because you have to go organization by organization by organization to kind of get that rot out of there. You seem like a super sweet, honest person and the exact type of person that I would want to be working in the government for me, you know, an honest, straight shooting person. That's who we want. But in government, it becomes nepotism and cronyism. Like, I'm only going to hire this guy or a girl and put it in the position because that way I can insulate myself from this shady things that I'm doing for this politician and this guy and that guy. And so you can't be touched. Who's going to call me into question? Who's going to hold me accountable? I'm the boss. And my boss, he's in on it too. He hired me to be in this position to protect him. By the time it gets down to the lower levels like you, where you're seeing this happening around you, you're like, wait a minute, man, this is this is dirty play, man. But what can I do? So you eventually decided, I've seen enough. Was there like a catalyst? What was the catalyst? Well, when I had applied to a job and I got a job offer and the person for whom I was working, who I was a whistleblower against, that my manager, he called the organization and told them that they had to rescind the job offer. He was like, no, she's not going anywhere. I will determine where she works next. And based on my upbringing, based on the way I was educated and how I grew up, I didn't understand that. I know there was a time in history where African-Americans or women, you could make those decisions, but I did not grow up in that era. So I did not understand. Right. You're not his property. He can't make these decisions for you. (laughs) So I really did not understand that. So I said, you know, it's time for me to leave. And that's what I did. And And to be clear, this is before the whistleblowing, right? Well, no, I was whistleblowing the entire time. But what I would tell people is that what I blew the whistle on, it was very kind of boring. And it really, it wouldn't make the news or anything. No one would really care. Right. My story really starts afterwards. After I handed in my notice, he got very upset. And he basically told the administrative staff not to process my resignation because that was not going to be my last day. I'm like, okay, well, I can show you better than I can tell you. (laughs) That will be my last day. So there were things I did behind the scenes, work with some people. And he was very surprised that I actually left when I said I was going to leave. Um, He couldn't block me like he tried. So it was after effect. And then all of the things that I documented in the book that's where the story really comes. Yeah, because they came after you, right? They came after you and targeted you after this. I will say there's some things I can definitely say the federal government did. The other things I believe they did, but I would have to yeah. do investigation and um, forensic kind of study to be able to prove. But I believe that they were behind it. I'm sure they are. You're not the type of person who's going to make it up. I can tell right now. Well, sounding crass, man, it took a lot of balls to do what you did while you're still actively working there. Who did you blow the whistle to? Did you try to circumvent like the C-suites or who did you go to? A, an oversight committee of some kind or something? You first let your manager know that I don't believe this is right. And then you give them opportunity to correct the behavior. When he didn't correct it, then I went to his manager, which was the person above him. So there is a process to follow. I did that. It didn't go the way that I would have liked it to go, 
But it was you think they were all in on it? You think the people you went to were scared of the boss and they didn't want to cause no waves, so they're just like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll work on that. What do you think? I think that it's more of a cover-up. Uh, at the time, I couldn't understand yeah. why. like, Because to me, like I said, it was so petty and silly. It's not worth anybody's time of day. One of the things that I told them that, you know, based on agency policy is that you can't have a contractor work on a contract until they pass the security adjudication. I mean, like I said, boring. He would get upset that I told him that because he wanted the contractor to start now. And I'm saying by policy, he can't. You have to wait. But he wanted to circumvent it. I'm like, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not signing off on it. Now, to most people, like that's very boring. Why would he go to those extremes or anybody go to extremes or something like that? That's what I'm talking about. It's very simple policy issues of how I'm interpreting the policy. This is what I think we can do. This is what I think we can't. To me, just being logical, that simplest solution would have been, well, let her go get another job because we're having these differences on how to interpret the policy. She can go have another job and go somewhere else. But with this particular person, he, to me, kind of felt like I was his property and that he was going to make me do things the way he wanted to do. And I'm saying, you know, we don't live in that era anymore. So you can't make me do what you want done. Yeah, the absolute arrogance is astonishing. (laughs) Yeah, wow. But, you know, they get the power trip, you know, people in those positions. Yeah, it's like a movie. Yeah, they they think they can do whatever they want. They're empowered. This happens primarily in the government positions. I'm not saying it doesn't happen in corporate in the the free market, but I'm saying in the government, these people become so bloviated with their power and position. They feel like you're going to do what I tell you to do because I'm saying it. And it just doesn't work like that. So after the fact, so you, you walk away and then didn't you have some issues where they kind of went after you tax wise and kind of mess with your life? There is a whole series of things that happen. And what I would say, it started off with, you know, things I would call like administrative issues, such as lowering my performance appraisal. So as soon as I left, yeah. I had a performance appraisal and it was lowered. Another thing interfering with my ability to get jobs in the federal government or as a federal government contractor. Um, There is a specific form that you have for people like me who've been in federal government for a long time. It's called an SF-50. I had a lot of trouble getting that SF-50 from them. What is supposed to happen as soon as you leave, when you exit the organization, they automatically cut or print out your SF-50 and mail it to you. Mine was not done. I had to go to the inspector general's office, uh, do a four-year request. I had to do all of these extra steps. And it took me almost six months to get it. And the reason why I think that was done is it stopped me from being able to apply to government positions as a person who had already had invested in. So you had to apply as a new employee instead of you know being able to have um, big deal that affects your entire life. I mean, it affects your entire pay grade, everything, you know. Yeah. So so what did you do? Did you go into the private sector or start your own business or anything like that? I know you're super smart. You, you could do that. I was unemployed for a small amount of time. Then I worked part time as a project manager for a company as a contractor to the federal government. It took me, I want to say about a year and a half to get back to a position at the salary that I had before I left. And I did have money saved up, but I didn't expect it to take me that long to get back. There were some hard times 
they weren't that hard. I, I shouldn't say they really hard. I, I wasn't homeless or anything or starving. Still, though, it affected your life. So, but just, yes, she ultimately. I will say if she started her own business, good luck getting permits and uh, good luck with the audits. Can't believe you were still working for the government in terms of like contractors. Yeah, it seems like you're a gem in the private sector. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. You would think, but. A couple of times I had two people contact me to let me know that the contact information on my resume was missing and they just happened to do extra steps to locate me. The one individual, he went into Google and did all this Google research as he was interested in hiring me and he left me a message. I still have it. Like, I'm hoping I have this right person. None of your contact information is on your resume. And I'm thinking maybe I did something wrong, but he gave me his number to let me know. Do you think they bleached your resume? Someone did. I will say like even now, (laughs) as an author, I'm like fast forwarding now, but as an author, I was going to do an author event with a Barnes and Noble store and I had filled out the paperwork, but I never heard back from the manager and I had actually called and she said, well, I never got a response from you. And I said, I did respond. And so I'm on the phone with her and I said, I'm sending you the information I sent to you. And she was like, I'm not getting anything. I said, okay. And so she said, well, let's test something. So she sent me an email and I'm like, I got it. And I went to respond to her and I said, well, I've responded. And she said, I'm not getting anything. Oh, that's So I've heard that from a couple of other people where it's like my responses to them are going into black holes. That's dirty play, Bill. (laughs) Like someone don't like her and they're really interfering with her life. Like it's not a coincidence. Anyways, tell about your story a little bit and where they can find you. Sure. The book document is what happened to me after becoming a whistleblower. And most of it has to deal with computer related events, things such as me logging into my bank account and there are all of these pending charges and the bank can't see them, but I'm telling them it's there documenting things like that, things such as speeding tickets or tickets being fabricated about not me, but people in my circle, about my privacy being violated during the security adjudication process, asking people associated with me you know, about if I had illegitimate children, if there was anybody in my family that was bribable. I mean, they're just <laughs> messing with you. They're just messing <laughs> well, no, with That wasn't the, 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 the most interesting one was, did they know anybody who knew anything embarrassing about me of a sexual nature oh my god bill and (laughs) oh my that's the one that's the main one they go to that's their go-to was she a freak did she do this did she do that they can sell your i I mean it was just unbelievable it's all in the book yes all of that's in the book fabricating financial documents saying that i had over a hundred and twenty thousand dollars in judgments and liens against me and people got too much time I mean, I'm just mess with a good person. And by the way, if you're listening, they did this on your dime. Oh, yeah. They got paid to do this. They got paid to sit in the office and cyber bully this poor good woman who is just basically trying to live an honest life and do the right thing. And we're paying for them to mess with her. And God only knows how many other people that they mess with. Yes. And I guess that's kind of the moral of her book. So give them the name of the book and where they can find it and where they can find you if you want to be found. 
Sure. The name of the book is Digital Assassins. It's on great name. <laughs> it's for sale on Barnes and Noble, Amazon. You also get it, I think, Books a Million, some other online retailers. I do have a website. It's danielspencer.org. Feel free. I'm also on other social media. All you have to do is go to the website and you can find all my different social media contacts. And as always in our archive episodes, we'll have all of her links and information in the show notes, including any bribable cousins and sexual quirks she might reveal. <laughs> we won't list any of that. Though. We'll keep, keep keep that to a minimum. So, I mean, everybody, make sure to check out her book, Digital Assassins. That's a great name. And really, that's what they were doing. They were trying to assassinate her digitally out of spite. Simple spite. It's really sad. Well, God bless you. Keep up the good work. I wish you nothing but the best. All right. Thank you. All right. We got to take a quick break. Stay tuned on 1010 The King. It's our thing. Let me tell you a story about Bill. Bill was a normal guy in his 50s. He had back surgery about two years ago. Bill was in a lot of pain. He dealt with his pain by taking the Percocets his doctor prescribed for him. Bill took more and more and more of them to help with the pain. Until one day, the prescriptions weren't enough to get rid of Bill's pain. Then one day, Bill found someone to help him get rid of the pain with illegal drugs he didn't need a prescription for. Fast forward to today. Bill lost his job and his family. The only thing he does have is his drug dealer. If you know Bill's story and you don't want to end up like Bill, call the Detox and Treatment Helpline right now to get away and get treatment. 800-762-6158. 800-762-6158. That's 800-762-6158. What's up? Welcome back to 1010 The King, our thing. I'd like to welcome to the show my next guest, Kathleen Barrett. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. She's got a great story, and this is one of my favorite kind of stories to share. She's a Christian author, a children's book author, really has a compelling young children's book. And I think this is the perfect time of year to be promoting the children's book. This is before Christmas, for the holidays. What I like about children's book authors is that especially if they work a message or a theme into the stories children their minds are so impressionable and they're also so absorbing when they're young if you can get them a to just start reading it's a huge win and b if what they're reading has a good message in it whether it's like out there or it's surreptitious and kind of has an undertone it's the same thing because it sinks into a child's mind whether they realize it or not and reading a good children's book could change your life. How many of us have read a children's books when we were young and still remember it to this day? And we still remember the story. We still remember the characters. I'm 50 years old. I can name five of them. And they all have this little message in them. Anyways, I'd like to welcome you to the show. So welcome, Kathleen. How are you? I'm doing well, Gunnar. Thank you. And everything you said is spot on about getting the children early. And this is For the Love of Big Beluga, A Tale of Family, Faith, Friendship, and Forgiveness. It's kind of a, a Lassie kind of a story. Remember Lassie on the sitcom? Of course, yes. I, before we get into that, I would like to talk a little about you, where you're from, and what was your life path that led you to this point where you started writing children's books? Oh, goodness, that's a lot to <laughs> unpack there. My young years, I grew up in a little town called Hawthorne, New Jersey. We moved away from there in 1957 and came to Florida. So we've been in Florida since 1957. So I'm practically a native here. Yeah. I grew up in a very loving, protective home, protective parents, had three siblings. And I was always sort of a introverted child. 
And I don't think I discovered writing until I was in the teen years. And my first published and accepted article was a speech that I had written for an American Legion national commander. My grandfather was American Legion commander, huge in Detroit. Yeah. Everybody knew him. He was very loved, but he was a big deal in the post. That was his oh, life. Yeah. My dad was commander two times in his post in Fort Lauderdale. But the speech I wrote was for my sixth grade teacher. And I wrote it when I was about 18 years old. And uh, he won commandership that year. And I don't know if it was a speech. It might have been. Yeah, but for 18 years old, that's huge to be able to write a speech of that caliber. Yeah, for a yeah. teacher. You that's know. not normal. Yeah, for your, no. old, your old sixth grade teacher from 10 years ago. Exactly. He was my favorite teacher, too. And so I guess the writing has been in my bones for a long time. And I do not only children's writing, but I do inspirational writing. I write blogs. I've been a newspaper reporter doing feature articles and magazine articles, poetry. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you've always been a writer. Yeah, you had your own column for a while, right? I did in a uh, community newspaper. Mm -hmm. So what was that like? Oh, I love that. What did you write about? Well, because it was a community newspaper and specifically in my neighborhood, I went around interviewing different people and finding stories from neighbors. Oh, that's awesome. It was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great gig. It was. <laughs> what has been your favorite writings so far in your life? I mean, you're a pretty tenured writer, obviously, at this point. What is the thing you love most uh, about writing? I think it is my blogs that I like. Books and Blogs for Spirit and Soul is what I have named it. And I think when God gives me just a title or mm -hmm. a scripture verse, and then I sit down and I ask the Holy Spirit, please give me what you want on this. Mm -hmm. So I think blog writing has been my favorite thing to do. Oh. And also I've had a few articles in magazines, so that's been nice. But I would say my favorite is blogs. So it's the spirituality type of writing that you enjoy the most. Yes. Inspirational, faith-driven kind of writing, which is amazing. And your blog is available now. You have a website and your blog's on that, right? Yes, it is. So we'll have all those links and we'll talk about that at the end, make sure people can get to that. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. So mm -hmm. spirituality and inspiration is, is kind of your foundation for your writing and inspiration mm -hmm. too, really. It's double entendre there. But what's the piece that you're most proud of? Do you have any one particular book, article, anything like that, that you're really proud of that you feel like was the one? Gosh, I can't pick one off the top of my head. I have to say they keep getting better and better, though. <laughs> no, it's not me. Oh, she's a writer. <laughs> I like it. Well, how does the Big Beluga rank in there? Yeah, and that's a great name, too. Okay, thank you. Yeah, the Big Beluga was 30 years in the making, this book right here. And finally, during COVID, I felt really impressed to get this book done. Why? Good question. Because my mantra has been for the past several years is to finish well, to finish my life well Amen. for God. Yeah. So this was one of the things that had been stuck in the back of my filing cabinet for such a long time. And it had a message and it was based on an actual mistreated dog in our neighborhood. His name was Josh. My children took him in and loved on him and tried to help him as best we could. And they renamed him the Big Beluka. So it starts out as a true story, but then it builds yeah. and it's actually fiction. Basically, as a writer, almost every book starts off with a tidbit of true story. 
So tell us a little more about this book. It's a good story. I want everybody to kind of know the story. And this is for the parent who's looking to get a gift for their child. What age group would this be for? Well, that's an interesting question. I had written it for like 8 to 12-year-old range. But the first month that it was released on Amazon, it became number one three times in the month of October. Wow. And I discovered that there were many adults buying the book. Well, now, were there adults buying it for their kids to read? Or what they no, reading? I have a friend who bought 50 books for her adult wow. softball team, and they read the book, and they said they couldn't put it down. Aww. It's an easy read. It's a sappy kind of old-fashioned, just sweet story. And I, I think nowadays we need something yes, sweet. Yes, we do. Something simple, something Amen. loving, something that teaches value. Yes. So tell us about this story. We know the dog was based on a dog that you happened to adopt and found. But in this particular story, I know that kind of a bully was picking on the dog and the girl intervened, I believe. And tell us about it. Actually, the real dog was a neighbor's dog in our neighborhood in, in Florida. He was neglecting and abusing the dog. That that kills me and Bill because we're big animal lovers. So like big, big animals. Are you really? Oh, yeah. Bill adopts animals. All his animals are like old animals that nobody wanted. And he adopts uh. them. And he takes them in and gives them a good life till they die. And he's a saint. That's beautiful. He's got a wolf. He's literally got a wolf. Yeah, I do. That wolf. wolf. You do? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) He's a really old wolf. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you guys are too much. So back to your book. So anyways, Meg, the protagonist, she's an 11-year-old girl who gets off the school bus one day and she sees the dog being kicked out the front door. And that sets her in motion to get her brother and her friends and go on this quest to rescue the dog. And funny things happen. There's tidbits of humor in here. Even now when I read it, I laugh and I think, where'd that come from? You know, your mind, (laughs) my mind. Yeah, it's a fun book. And the one section in here that I'd like to read is in chapter 17, where the dog's abuser is invited to Meg's house to talk to the family. This is an important part of the book. May I read it? Absolutely. Please do. Okay. He's a good old Southern boy. This Mr. Werner. W.C. Werner is his name. I want you to know that I called that there clinic this morning to check on Josh. He's doing real fine, they say. They took x-rays and blood samples and all. Gave him a bath and shaved him down. Took the knots out, I guess. I can't bring him home, though. The officer said I'm going to be charged for animal cruelty. Guess I deserve it. I've been a mean, no-good cuss for a long time. Werner confessed with his head lowered. Mr. Werner, God doesn't see you that way, Meg said softly. Werner quickly sat up and folded his arms. Sorry, I don't want to hear anything about your God. He took my wife away, and now he's taken my dog away. He doesn't love me or care about me. We are sorry to hear that, Mr. Werner, Mrs. Wilson said. When did she pass away? She didn't. She left me, and I blame God. Mrs. Wilson thought it best to end the conversation there, but Meg did not. Mr. Werner, some people hurt so bad that they begin believing that God doesn't love them. But I tell you the truth. His love is deep and wide and long and has no end. Nothing can stop him from loving you. There is something we all have to do, though, Meg replied. 
Meg's family listened in awe as she spoke to this troubled man. Miss Meg, I know what you're going to say. I've been to church a time or two, and I read my Bible sometimes. I know. I have to ask for forgiveness. Gosh darn it, that's why I'm here. Bernard choked up. A long and awkward silence filled the room. The budding missionary and veterinarian drew a deep breath and then spoke. Mr. Werner, I'm the one who needs to ask you for forgiveness. Once again, there was an awkward silence. Werner squinted his eyes and his big bushy brows furled. I, I don't understand, he said, looking at Meg and then at the rest of the family. Meg continued, sir, I have been very angry with you. I've been thinking bad things about you because you mistreated Josh. I didn't even want you to come here today, but I'm glad you did. Now, I want to ask you something, Mr. Werner. I have to know, will you forgive me? Oh, I, I love that. It's, <laughs> it's beautiful. I can, I'm picturing Meg, this cute little kind of quirky, smart girl, sweet girl. I like that message, Bill, don't you? Like, oh, you know, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. The Christian lean of it. It's it's powerful. I mean, it is. And I read reviews of your book and they were all overwhelmingly positive. And the one thing that kind of irked me, and even though this review was 99 percent positive, it said that the thing it lacked was a major trauma or obstacle. For one thing, I just heard it. OK, the other thing is, right. I don't. I think they missed the mark. There's this stigma now that if you're watching a show or if you're reading a book, they can't be all happy. The ending can't be too good. A happy ending has to have a little bit of bad, a little bit of sad and a little bit of unseen yeah. tragedy. And it can't just be good. And I find the older I get and especially when I'm watching with my kids, I want the happy. You know, yeah. I want this dog to be OK. I don't want this dog to die. Oh, but it had a puppy, <laughs> you know, so the puppy, right. lived. you know, I was like, why can't the freaky dog just live for once? You know, I mean, that's a great point. Really that's a great, great point. Why can't there be something good? Why can't it end on a good note? Well, especially when it's yeah. a kid's. Book. Yeah. Why can't it be that? There was a movie, Benji. It was like a remake, you know, mm -hmm. Benji. And my daughter is very sensitive, especially when it comes to dogs. And there's this scene where Benji jumps off this train and lands flat down on a platform. And they're like, ah, you know, Benji's dead or whatever. And she lost it. OK. And it didn't matter that later on Benji was OK, hated the movie, yeah. cried herself to sleep. And I'm like, yeah, it was OK. You know, but it didn't matter. It was so dark. For yeah. people to say like, oh, you know what the children's book is missing? A little bit of darkness. No, it's not missing. No, there's right. darkness in the world. Yeah, it doesn't belong yeah. there and nobody yeah. wants it. Yeah, there's it. enough yeah. darkness. This is the 17th chapter. I think I have yeah. 23 or 24 chapters. So there's still tension, but not graphic pain and darkness. There's tension. Yeah. <laughs> the little girl, she's smart enough and evolved enough spiritually to know that even though she was having these mean, dark thoughts about him, that she was in the wrong for that herself. Yes. And she asked him to his face to forgive her for that and tried to make it clear that 
If I can forgive you, God can forgive you. He loves you. That's a great message for kids. That's a great message. It is. And I love it that even the bad guy is not really the bad guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You never fall too far that God can't lift you out and forgive you. What a great message for young people. Thank you. Books like this, Bill, should be mandatory reading in grade school. Thank you. If they would just say, we're going to read one book a week in our English class like this, and they would absorb these type of stories. Imagine how much better our society would be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Imagine how much more stable it would be where kids will have absorbed information that reminds them that God is real. He loves you. He forgives you. And also tells them how to behave. Have empathy for the bad guy neighbor and especially have empathy for the, the dog. Yes. People today, they don't care about anything except themselves. And that's what we teach them in society. That's what we teach them in school, on social media. It's like, listen, we need more characters like Meg, is what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. Right, it makes for a happier child. Yeah, happy society. Yeah, I think so. I'm happy to say that I donated 25 of these books to the St. Lucie County Library School System. Therefore, this is in the school systems, in the library. So if a child happens to pick it up and reads it, it'll bless their little hearts if they check it out and read it. You know, God is offensive to many people, unfortunately. Yeah, these days. Oh, I wanted to say something about the cover, too, if I may, because that's part of a beautiful story. The young girl, she was a teenager, 16 years old. When she drew this cover, it's a pencil sketch of a Bernese Mountain Dog. She is legally blind, and her bio is in the back of the story. Her name is Phoebe Yablonski. And so people can't see it, but it's the portrait of the dog. Picture a close-up of his face, and it's really well done. And if you saw it, it looks like a professional drawing that fits the book perfectly. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Beautiful young lady. This was her first commercial-type work. You would never know. She did this from a picture that I sent her. And her mother wrote me and said, Phoebe is sketching out the picture. She would get real close to her work within less than six inches to sketch this out. And it took her 13 hours to draw this picture. It's a beautiful element of the book. Thank you. I love this, man. Anyone who listens to this, if you have kids, spend a couple dollars on this book. Buy it for your kids. Tell them to read it, but also maybe read it with them. And when these powerful moments take place about God and spirituality, have a conversation with them. I don't want to ruin the end, but I mean, I kind of do. I want to know what happens. Rabies. (laughs) Oh, God. Rabies. That'd be so dark, Bill. Well, of course, she has this big backyard picnic and invites her school friends. And there was even news reporters there. And uh, at the very last minute, she wasn't sure if Big Beluka was going to actually be hers or not. Oh, so she's fallen in love with this dog. And now she's dreaming about it being hers. Yeah, she was hoping, but not until she saw Mr. Werner standing at the gate in his snakeskin boots did she know that he had a gift for her, and the gift was an adoption certificate giving her the rights to Big Beluka. Oh, my goodness. That's going to make me cry. I I, I love it. It's a story. I love it because the message is there. The message is good. And they all lived happily ever after, except all- the snakes. <laughs> exactly. The day they'd be like, look at this guy. He's a killer of snakes. He's got snakes and boots on. 
anyway, that's a sweet story. And I love the ending too. It's, you know, kind of redemptive on his part. It has a good message. This is a fun read. I, I think this would be a fun read for a kid, man. It is. We love this and we love you. Oh, thank you. We love you for writing that. Did you want to know about my other book? Well, you're more than welcome to mention it. Sure. I'll just mention it because it's actually an anthology. I didn't write it, but my story is included in the anthology and including 18 other women who have really met with some adversity and how they got through it. What's the name? Of the book? Embrace the Journey, Your Path to Spiritual Growth. Nice. So it's a so. Christian-themed book? Oh, yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think Kathleen's is on page 117, right? Well, you're really with it, Bill. <laughs> Bill comes prepared. Wow, you're great. What? So what's your story about in this? Well, my story is about my husband's construction accident. Do you remember? I told you last year. Oh, yeah, I? terrible. This is really tragic, but also miraculous. It was. We were just married four months. He was a construction worker on the fifth floor of yeah. a 12-story condo. And you're supposed to take down one ceiling form. The forms hold up the floor above. He took it down. And when that happened, all the other forms fell and pushed him outside of the building. And the building had no guardrails around it. So he fell feet first all oh. the way down five floors oh, onto a pile of cement debris. And he was oh. in the hospital for three months. It took him almost a year to learn how to walk again. I mean, it's a miracle he even lived. Oh, he broke his back, crushed his left ankle, oh. broke his right ankle. We didn't know for about a week whether or not he was going to live or die. Oh, At, now he's 81. God is good. But didn't this kind of turn the corner on his faith and your faith too? Yeah. <laughs> it turned the corner on my faith big time. It was a growing experience for me. It was what I call in the book a course correction. Because, yeah. you know, you think your life is going very well and you're going to church, you're praying, you're doing this and that. You're happy. You have an appearance of a Christian, but you got a lot of garbage in you. It really does have to come out. And that's what I mean, too, about finishing well. We appreciate you, appreciate your book. Tell everyone where they can find your books. Make sure to tell the names of the books. And also, if you, if you have your website and any social media you want to plug. Well, as always, you can get For the Love of Big Beluga on Amazon. But also, if you go into your brick-and-mortar bookstores like Barnes & Noble mm -hmm. and order it, you can get it through any bookstore. Yeah and just say, I'd like to order For the Love of Big Beluga by Kathy Barrett, or KM Barrett is what I have on there now. And social media, kathybarrettwrites.com. I have KM Barrett author, but kathybarrettwrites.com is my website. For the Love of Big Beluga, I feel like that should be like an everyday language, like you get upset or something. When you drop an anvil on your foot. Yes, for the love of Big Beluga. Too much. I, I love being on your show, and I think you make a great pair to do a show like this. No, really, both are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And I have to say, as always, if you go to our archive shows on Spotify, our Heart Radio, and the show notes, I'll have all her links and how to get it. I'll make it real easy to find. Pleasure having you on. We'll have to have you on again. Keep writing, and when your next book drops, give us a call. We'll have you back on to talk about. It. I love it. Thank you, guys. God bless. Will, I love to end the show on a positive note like that, spiritual note and inspirational note. So with that, it's another one in the books, our thing on 1010 The King. We'll see you next week. God bless. Have a good week. We out.